From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. My favorite definition of the Catholic Church is attributed to James Joyce. Catholic means, here comes everybody. Never in my lifetime has that definition felt more accurate than now during this synod on synodality. I imagine a lot of our listeners have been active in the synod, maybe participating in their local communities in this global process of spiritual conversation and consultation. There are a number of stages in the synod, starting with those local listening sessions and then moving all the way up to these gatherings of the synod of bishops in Rome. Those gatherings are coming up both this October and next year. And for the first time ever, about 20% of the voting members of the Synod will be made up of lay women and men. And last week, the General Secretariat of the Synod in Rome started this phase that will lead to the gatherings in Rome with the release of a 60-page document called the Instrumentum Laboris. This working document will be the basis of all the work of the Synod fathers and mothers in Rome. And unlike previous synods, this Instrumentum Laboris, it's not a document to be amended and approved, but it's a series of questions on key topics related to communion, mission, and participation in the church. The document itself is an incarnation of synodality, which makes space for all participants to be heard. One of the Synod team members who collaborated on this working document is Professor Anna Rollins, and she's my guest today. Anna holds the St. Hilda Chair in Catholic Social Thought and Practice at Durham University in the United Kingdom. She is a political theologian who works at the intersection of political and social theory and Christian theology. She is the author of an acclaimed book on Catholic social teaching titled Towards a Politics of Communion, Catholic Social Teaching in Dark Times, which was published in 2021. Anna is one of the few people on earth who has pretty much read every word submitted to Rome from the church all over the world. So she brings an incredible wealth of experience and a truly global perspective to this conversation on the Synod. I wanted to ask her how the working document was shaped and for her take on the key themes that animate it. It was fascinating to hear what most surprised her as she took in such a volume of testimony from every continent. I hope her reflections will be a useful introduction for you and you'll have the chance to read and pray with the working document and maybe even have some spiritual conversation with it along with people in your own local community. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts and thanks for joining us. Professor Anna Rollins, welcome to AMDG. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you right after the release of the Instrumentum Laboris, the working document for the next phase of the Synod of Bishops on Synodality. And it's exciting to read this and to be thinking about it. And I'm excited to ask you about kind of how it came to be. So you're involved on the team that that worked on putting this together. So could you, as much as you can, can you bring us into that process? Like what, what was the process in, in crafting this particular document uh, for this stage of the Synod? Sure, well, so this is a great moment to be talking about it because it's hot off the press. 
um, and it's just beginning to make its way into the world. So, so this is an exciting moment to be talking a bit about both its content and the process. So a bit like the other processes um, that have led to documents for this synod, this has been worked on by a group of people who've reflected together on the, the core themes that have come out through the synod journey. But more than that, also the emerging sense of what synodality means to people at a grassroots level within the church. So there's two things that I'd say. First of all, there was a group that met together in Rome um, probably about 10 weeks ago now that was globally representative. Um, and it was a mix of lay people, religious, um, theologians, uh, priests and bishops, even the odd cardinal thrown in. And the, the attempt was to think a little bit about, first of all, what have we learned about the signs, the characteristics of synodality through this journey? So the document, importantly, doesn't try and offer a systematic theology of synodality. It doesn't try and offer the world's neatest definition of what it is. What it does instead is it tries to give you indicators as to how you might spot the characteristics of synodality if you're to see it in the wild, as it were. How would you know it was definitely a synodal process as opposed to something else? And I think that's a really helpful part of the first stage of the document. And that relied not on just two or three writers, as it were, but that relied on a whole team effort from a global perspective to draw down that learning on, on, on the kind of words and phrases that now come to mind to help people grasp and define this idea. It doesn't trip off the tongue easily, synodality, so it does need some really careful description so that it becomes something that, that people have an innate sense of as part of the life of the church. So that group met, and then from that process of discussion and reflection, including all of that use of silence and careful, respectful listening, we use that as we, as we pulled together the document then there was a process of really condensing and synthesizing and consulting very widely on the structure of the document. And, and that's what's really taken the last sort of 10 weeks or so to, to the document that you have now. You've been involved in this phase in a number of different ways, including one of the few people on the planet, really, to read everything that came in from around the world as these synod meetings were happening at, in local churches, going up then through dioceses and, and other forms. So I am curious for you, with that global perspective, what are some of the those common themes that you are seeing? As you're saying, trying to notice those descriptors of synodality for how, when we might notice it in the wild. What are some of the, the themes that you kept seeing kind of come up from different parts of the world that you know, knew you really wanted to to bring together as a group uh, kind of at the heart of this document? Yeah, so, so there's almost um, the light and the shade, if you like. So there were common themes about the nature of what a synodal church looked like in practice, that it's a humble church, a listening church, a church built for encounter, a church built for loving relationships that are able to hold together the relationship between truth and mercy. So that these were all really important characteristics that people hungered for across the globe. And we wanted to make sure that we did justice to those in the way that we described um, what a synodal church had felt like to the people making this journey for the last two years through all of those stages as you've just described them. Then there's the shadow side, if you like, which is the things that people felt the church was struggling with. And we've put those really into the second half of the document. Um, and if you like, these are the, the areas where either synodality is under some stress in the life of the church, there are kind of fracture lines, tension points, but also where there are things that simply diminish or 
uh, seem to block the possibilities of synodality. So the document also talks about those as well in some detail. And again, what struck me as really remarkable when reading um, the documents, you're absolutely right, I'm one of the very few people that has really read almost everything that's come in at every stage from last April onwards, so I haven't really slept for about a year. Um, but I know an awful lot about what the Catholic Church thinks globally through, through reading these reports. What's really interesting is that there are experiences of uh, liturgy that are very common across the globe, that people really hunger for preaching, for homiletics that really touches their hearts, that's theologically well-informed, but not abstract or esoteric, that's well-prepared, that helps people develop in spiritual maturity and a closeness to Christ. Now, that's often felt to be absent in the quality of preaching globally. That's, that's really marked. Equally, there's a hunger for diverse forms of liturgy as well. And enculturation might mean very different things in different settings. It might mean a liturgy that's much closer to the language and the traditions of a people in a context, for example, where there is a strong indigenous community. It might mean for people in the West at the moment, there's a hunger for forms of Latin mass again. So the really interesting questions of a kind of enculturated liturgy that come up in a global context those are issues that might seem to divide us on the surface, but actually I think there's a kind of commonality about an enculturedness in our liturgy, a richness of culture and language and expression and beauty and connection. So those are really interesting issues. And then there are real questions about transparency, accountability, and really the poor use of power in many forms. And that touches on issues of spiritual abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, the weighty issues that really are really deadening issues for the church now and need to become the site of our conversion and our transformation. The role of women, the absence of a generation of young people from our pews. I mean, these are really obvious things that tie us together globally. I suppose the other thing that I would say that I noticed, um, and this is much more at the level of the Continental Assemblies, is there's a kind of myth, I think, that the church is divided between global north and global south, that the issues of Africa and Asia are not the issues of Europe or the US or Latin America. And I simply don't believe that's true, having read the reports from across the globe. Where I think there are often tensions and difficulties is in the different priorities between near neighbours within continents. And I think those are much more interesting to explore. We're very shaped by our histories, our very recent histories. And I think that really came uh, to be apparent to us during the Continental Assemblies. And for everybody apart from Latin America, those Continental Assemblies are the real innovation of the process. And I think they really broke open and allowed us to see something that maybe we haven't encountered and seen adequately before. This is not just about the very local in Rome um, or the national level Episcopal Conference, the local in Rome. This is about a kind of regional encounter that's been made possible through the synodal process. And that, I think, is a site for real development. So you've talked a little bit, again, about this global view and things that kind of unite us, but then also differences. And one of the phrases that comes up in the document that you know, we talk about here in the U.S. certainly is the idea of unity within diversity, especially as the church is changing here. So how do you have established this kind of global vision while also trying to um, – holds as sacred the things that do make us different and distinct. That's it, a challenge to be both emphasizing uh, communion, which is right at the heart of the document and the first of kind of three major markers of synodality, but also allowing for this diversity of expression. So for, how do you navigate that? So I think that's one of the reflective questions, um, and it's an ecclesiological question of great depth. 
um, that is being set before the Synod Fathers and Mothers for October. But I think what's interesting is that this emerges, this unity and diversity theme emerges in a number of different ways across the documents. So one of those is around liturgical expression, as I've just mentioned. So you get the, and especially because of the global and interconnected nature of the world that we live in, you can end up with um, Eastern Rite Catholic churches in, for example, Australia, um, in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, who are thriving. So you get these very distinct forms of a Catholic culture alongside Latin Rite forms. So part of the unity and diversity can be about diasporic Catholic communities thriving um, amongst a kind of wider host population, if you like. That kind of unity and diversity needs to be built and preserved as well. So there's a kind of liturgical version of that. Equally, there are significant differences in where some um, national churches find themselves at the moment in terms of the priorities that they set for ministry and particularly for pastoral outreach in their context. So what the Swiss church or the German church is asking for does have some differences from what a number of churches elsewhere are asking for. And, and one of the questions that the Instrumentum Laboris poses is, how much can there be a degree of regional variation and still hold that life of communion together? How might a church, uh, a local church community, a particular church, be on the forefront of pushing new pastoral options, um, potentially new, um, new structures of various kinds? To what extent is it possible to imagine that? And that question, importantly, is not being answered only to be rubber stamped in October. That's a vulnerable, open, important question that's being put before the church. There's a degree of spiritual maturity that's demanded to attend to these questions. And I think the Instrumentum Laboris has been drafted with that sense of a call to the spiritual maturity of the people of God to handle exactly these delicate and difficult questions. And questions, let's face it, that the rest of the world is struggling within its political and economic cultures to face at the moment. So we're being asked to model a healthy way of, of journeying through these questions of unity and diversity, of not in any way lessening um, our communion and our unity, but finding that holding on to healthy and fruitful forms of diversity, not any form of diversity for its own sake, but healthy, life-giving diversity that could well be a fruit of the spirit. You started mentioning, I think, a little bit toward the, the structure of the Instrumentum Laboris, which is not, again, a document to be kind of approved, doesn't put forward kind of this, this uh, an argument or vision that we can say, okay, can we give a yes or no vote to this? And I know in, in past synods, often that working document sort of is the, the basis for the discussion and then could be you know ratified, changed, and then published kind of by the Pope, but you have a good sense of where things are going. For the first time in a, this type of document, it is presented largely as a series of questions and probably more than half of it is worksheets for kind of to guide conversation. How did that, how did your team, as people are working together, decide like, you know what, this is how we want to kind of put this document forward as a series of questions for reflection and conversation um, as opposed to kind of a declarative statements? So I think what has been unique about this uh, synodal process is the very method at the heart of it, the use of what's being called conversation in the spirit or spiritual conversation. And that process does not work if you're simply ratifying a pre-drafted text. So for that method to run genuinely as a kind of tool for discernment all the way through the process, you need to have an open set of questions and a process to allow those questions to be taken forward. 
So it feels, I think, to the team who drafted this as if it is entirely coherent with the process from beginning to end, that it offers people structured points of reflection to engage with the method of conversation and the spirit. And that's what the Instrumentum Laboris does. So you're right, the second half is almost like an enormous agenda for a meeting. It's a structured set of questions on a variety of topics that emerge from the continental phase and set before people, first of all, a meta question. So each worksheet has a major single question at the top, uh, which is the topic of the sheet, if you like. And then it has a series of very detailed questions, which are for preparatory reflection before people turn up in October. Now, what's also interesting is using those worksheets, this absolutely will be the transparent work of the October um, synodal meeting, but these can also be used in local contexts so that people at the grassroots, the people of God in their local context can also undertake that journey together as well. So this is an instrumentum laboris, which is of universal use and application, if you like, in a way quite different um, from previous instrumentum laboris. And, and I think what's interesting about that is it continues this circular method, the idea that at each point the synod process leaps back round to the grassroots level and attempts at all points to carry the memory of that earlier grassroots process with it as it goes, not to leave it behind in a kind of sequential fashion, but to have this kind of constant circularity, which is not a sort of, as somebody described it very critically, it's like an endless committee meeting. And um, that's not at all what it's like, but there is a necessary circularity to the process itself. So it's to encourage people to please use the worksheets themselves and not imagine that they're the preserve of an elite few um, who will be meeting in Rome in October. One of the things that was really striking about the beginning of this document is the kind of report that from around the world, a kind of global trend was that people reported appreciating the process and that it being something that was even more moving or effective than they would have imagined, that it exceeded expectations. And some people say, you know, no one's ever asked me before. And to have the chance to kind of share my experiences and then to receive and hear others was a new experience. Is that something that you noticed uh, yourself from as you were reading uh, these from around the world? Yes, absolutely. And a, a couple of reflections that I have on that. The first is, I think the use of silence, so this idea of structured silence that punctuates the conversation. So for people who haven't been through the method, there's a round of sharing where people are given an equal amount of time each to share um, a reflection at the beginning. And then you hold a period of silence while people are able to absorb the contributions of others and have a level of awareness about what they have said. And that's a space for the spirit to act and for there to be a kind of receptive movement of the group in relation to each other. Then there's a second round of reflection, which is really to take something that somebody else has said in the group, perhaps, or something people feel moved to say on the basis of the first sharing. So it's not meant to be the equivalent of, oh, and another point, something I forgot to say before, but is meant to be part of this receptive movement. Then there's a second phase of silence and then a final phase of speaking. The use of that structured speech and silence has been, I think, for some people, simply revelatory and transformative. One of the reasons is that I think actually in the Polish report says this really movingly, we th we all like to think of ourselves as people who listen well to others. And in fact, listening is a really hard thing to do well. We don't like listening to other people for a really long time. And we often find it quite demanding and draining, especially if somebody's expressing something which is pretty different to a view that we might hold ourselves. 
So holding that structured speech and silence has been a way of allowing really different and sometimes contradictory opinions to reside in the same room and be held in a Christian spirit and ethos. And I think for some people, they have simply never been in a communicative arena, especially in a current kind of social media, quick reaction, not much silence kind of mode. They've simply not had an experience of communication like this. So that's important. Secondly, you mentioned, and this is quite right, that there are many people who turned up to make their voices heard in the synodal process who feel that in their entire lifetimes, and these include people in their 70s, 80s and 90s, they have never been asked by the church what they believe, what they have experienced in their life. And therefore, they felt kind of dignified and honoured and affirmed and recognised and received to be able to offer their experience. And, and the idea that, that the Holy Father had called for a process in which their voices counted that to them felt extraordinary. And I, I don't think we can undermine the significance of that. And then the third thing very briefly I would say is, I was talking to a bishop recently who told me that the method itself had acted like, I think he described it as a de-weaponization program in his community, that there were individuals who'd come into the room, into the synod meeting, absolutely determined to make their point and take others down and defend territory. And through sitting with this structured speech and silence, he said, I watched them gradually lay down their weapons. And instead, a very different kind of communication happened and a very different kind of fragile bond of relationship and recognition emerged. And I think those experiences, no matter what October achieves or doesn't achieve, I do think those experiences already are fruits of this synodal path. I do want to ask you about listening. And one critique I've seen in some quarters um, is that, you know, the church really, its, its markers are, you know, mother and teacher. And there's a, you know, a document by that name um, where church is teacher, not teacher first. And so the, the idea of a listening church kind of flips it around on its head and it removes the church from what it's called to do. Now, for me, I, I'm not an expert on the history of synodality, but it feels like if you go back, this is not a new concept in that uh, the church also you know, can be a listener and a teacher. How do you hold those things together, this church as a, a listener? And is that a fair critique that the church is supposed to be a teacher? And by doing this listening process, you're kind of um, abdicating the role of teacher? Um, or how, yeah, how would you respond to that, to that critique? Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of it is founded on a, a sort of a misconception that the entire whole of the synodal process is nothing but an extended listening exercise. I think the fact that the first part, I think the, the fact that the first part of this journey has involved this lengthy period of listening has been uncomfortable for some people. But I almost feel that the Pope knew it would be uncomfortable. And that's one of the reasons why of necessity it took so long. It takes away from us the temptation to imagine that we know what to say. We know what aspect of our teaching we might most need to draw on before we have paid uh, people due respect of listening to where they are in their lives, of wondering which questions it is that they would like the teacher to engage with them over and perhaps to answer. And if we look at the Jesus of the Gospels, the notion that Jesus is simply in a transmit mode permanently, rather than drawing out and eliciting from people the deepest concerns, troubles and joys of their souls and responds to those with food, my worry is what kind of nourishment would we offer to people? 
um, if we were not engaged in that active process of listening. The church is not only convoked in synod, the church is simultaneously engaged in all of these modes of activity, but there isn't a special discipline, if you like, that the synod on synodality is introduced into the bloodstream of um, the church of our times, and that is to enact this specific discipline of listening for a period of time and carrying that listening into a very careful, discerning, celebrating, communicating mode, which is where we're moving now. So I'd be very worried about a church that teaches without listening. Hmm. So for you, as someone who is engaged in church stuff, right, and have been for some time and have written and you're in this, you're a church person. And so you could have probably come in and done your own, oh, this is what we'll hear, right? And maybe written that up beforehand. But I am curious for you, having received a lot of this, was there anything or any, a couple of things that really surprised you? Things that were like, wow, I wouldn't have known this. I wouldn't have even uh, guessed it if I hadn't been receiving the testimonies from around the world? Yeah, there are a couple of things. So one is really, um, and I mentioned it very briefly before, what emerged from the continental meetings. And I'll give a sort of example to make it concrete. If you think about Europe, which is my own context, Europe is deeply divided by its history and its sense of being a, a body of Christ in, in this continent is so affected by the history of communism and post-communism or not having lived through that history by the history of the closeness of the church to various authoritarian regimes during the 20th century. So if you had very close connection between the church um, and fascism in various of its forms, then that marks the context of those churches. Churches that are dealing with a very, very strong legacy of sexual abuse. So the reality is that there can be real divisions between near neighbours who do not understand each other's histories despite sharing borders. On one side of that border, the pressing issues of the church can feel very different to those on the other side. And we very often fail to talk about the significance of historical memory in forming our sense of, uh, in talking about our sense of who we are now and the renewal that we need the spirit to bring, um, the conversion that we need, as it were, from Christ in those settings. So that capacity to understand the history of near neighbours and to see the way that we're marked by our histories, that's one thing that emerged as a real surprise and a kind of humble and necessary learning point. The second is a very different example, which is the number of contexts which spoke of a desire, not just for individual accompaniment, as it were, by the church, so priests or pastoral ministers accompanying individuals in their lives, but the desire for family groups, for example, to feel that they're more supported in the development of their spiritual lives as domestic church, if you like, and the lack of availability of a kind of ongoing form of formation, support and accompaniment. And this is much more in the mode of accompaniment than it is of formation for family units. And Asia, the Asian reports were particularly strong in both calling for that and giving some examples of good practice. So that desire for the accompaniment, not just of individuals, but of family groups as a necessary part of mission. Um, that for me was really refreshing and interesting and thought provoking. Yeah, I can tell you, I have three young children, and I feel uh, like we are in a hole. <laughs> it, you know that the, the our parish, our church, is not set up uh, to welcome 
specifically families with very young children, kind of before they're in the the catechetical program. Uh, so I would echo that that one. So if Pope Francis is listening and, and uh, the synod fathers and mothers are listening. I, no, that's certainly one. And like, so our family were thinking, should we start a lay ecclesial movement at the families? Because there is, there does seem to be something missing. I, I do kind of in that spirit, our hunger to participate. So participation is the kind of third um, you know, big area for reflection and participation in the life of the church. And really, I think the document does a good job of like, affirming that uh, Vatican II call to, you know, the um, to respect the dignity of the baptized and that we all kind of have roles to play, whether or not um, we are, are clergy or are, you know, church professionals or, or something. So could you reflect a little bit on the uh, theme of participation? And for you, what are some of the, the kind of uh, key themes that emerge within that overarching theme? Yes. Yeah, so again, one of the interesting things was how readily people identified with the language of the dignity of the baptized, that this is the whole people of God. Somebody said to me, um, and I must actually check this in the, in the document, but somebody said to me when they had read it at the end of last week, this was a layperson. I'm so grateful that the document doesn't talk about the laity, the clergy, but rather talks about the people of God and then talks about specific ministries, charisms and so forth. And I think actually um, that's really helpful to us because this vision of participation in the document is participation for the sake of enacting uh, the vocation of every baptized person, enabling the vocation of every baptized person within the church to contribute towards the mission of the church in the world. So this isn't participation as a kind of rights culture, my right to occupy a place. This is much more about participation as the means towards the healthiest, most vibrant church possible for the sake of mission to the world. The church exists, the only institution that exists, not for its own sake, but for the sake of the world. So the framing of participation and, and its new flow within the document is an expression of that tie to the task of mission. Now, within the section on participation, there then is a call for deep reflection on what are the charisms and ministries that we most need to recognise that might already be present amongst us and that we can enable, support, accompany and sometimes more formally recognise. So it raises questions about those who are now in new forms of ministry at the forefront of ecological conversion. How do we recognize those, especially when, frankly, they're often lay people who could well be going off into well-paid jobs in other areas of, of life and society, but are offering this kind of common witness on behalf of the church, not just as individuals. So it gives that as one example, but that need to discern where is the spirit active and already present in the lives of people? How do our theologies of ministry, how do our structures, how does canon law keep up with, as it were, the speed of the spirit, which is slow wisdom, but the speed of the spirit, um, as it were, moving through the face of, uh, over the face of the earth through the church. So that final section, I think, is almost the naughtiest in a way of the whole text, because that third section raises the biggest ecclesiological issues and challenges for us. It is, I have to emphasise this, about culture and mindset as much as it is about structures, it's simultaneously asking us to reflect on both. There are already many things that canon law makes possible that we do not make use of, that we do not utilise in terms of maximising participation. So this isn't all about change and the new, it's actually about the capacity to receive 
many of the rules and structures that we already have, but to ask really tough questions about the areas where we find that our current structures and our current canon law is not fit for the practice of the church in this moment. So if you're an ecclesiological nerd, um, you know, that's definitely the section for you. But equally, every single one of us should be invested in the questions about transparency, accountability, about the call and recognition of charisms and ministries in that in that third section. And one of the criticism, criticisms of the document uh, and the synod process is that somehow we want to do away with uh, the role of bishops, we want to lessen the role of clergy, of the ordained ministry. And I think when you look at that section, that absolutely is untrue. This is about a renewal of the ministries of all of the people of God. And that includes really a renewal um, in the ministry of the bishop, um, a renewal in the ministry um, of those who were who were ordained um, to the priesthood. So the document, I think, needs to be read in that spirit of what could we do more of with the current structures we already have by a change of mindset and how in the light of uh, in particular, the Second Vatican Council and what we discern the church to be doing uh, in uh, uh, what we discern the spirit to be doing in the church. Now we are able to do to renew the mission, the mission um, and the ministry um, of bishop, priest um, and indeed um, of, a, of a wider laity. So your your own background is in Catholic social teaching and written on migration and the great tradition of uh, Catholic social doctrine. And I'm curious for you then how you saw a lot of those themes kind of playing out as the uh, Instrumentum Laboris was crafted and throughout the whole uh, synod process. So one of the things that's worth remembering is that when Pope Francis called this synod, he particularly wanted those at the peripheries, as he often refers to them, people at the peripheries, to be at the centre of synodal listening. So at every stage, there's been a desire to, if you like, enact the principles of Catholic social teaching at the heart of a synodal process. And that's one of the things that I think genuinely is very new and very different about the method of this particular synod. The reality is that some contexts found it easier to reach those peripheries than others did. And one of the ongoing challenges that the synodal process's listening stage has revealed is just how difficult it can be to hear those voices. So that interests me and also troubles me greatly, but I'm very moved by many of the contributions which did emerge from those peripheries and they really challenged the power structures of the church itself. So many contexts talked about the ways in which divisions of class, of tribe, of ethnic group that apply to society also affect the life of the church in terms of who has the power to speak, who decides, and about what, who seems to be privileged in being consulted within the life of a local church, and who seems not to matter for that process of consultation. So there are real participatory challenges, which are about upholding the dignity of the person that emerged. Equally important were themes really in particular from Oceania, um, from Asia and elsewhere about the impacts of climate change and the need for a full ecological conversion within the life um, of the church universal at every local level to realizing the challenge which Pope Francis has endlessly been teaching about through his papacy, that what we need is a new ethic of how to live together um, in greater harmony, unity and diversity within our common home. So if there's a challenge that comes out of this synodal process for many, it is learning how to live together in, in proper a proper Christian witness of love and fraternal uh, relations of kinship relations as sisters and brothers for uh, our common home. And I think that remains obviously a very key CST part of the document. 
Also, what emerges is a desire to rethink ecumenism and inter-religious uh, dialogue and relationships so that at the most local level, it's not necessarily about debating key points of, of doctrine, important though those remain, but also standing side by side and offering a common witness to tend to the wounds of the world. In some contexts, there's a discussion of what in particular in the Middle East is referred to as an ecumenism of martyrdom, of a kind of witnessing context of Christian persecution that means there's a de facto ecumenism that emerges um, through situations of extreme hardship and persecution. And elsewhere, there's a real desire where these are strongly interreligious contexts where Christians might well be in a minority, particularly in some settings in Asia. There's a hunger for interreligious dialogue and a hunger for genuine commitment to social change through interreligious action. So all of those things interest me from a CST perspective. Equally interesting, of course, is that many of the core ideas of the Synod, the dignity of the baptised, listen to that language, notions of subsidiarity in the life of the church. What decision, where does power lie? Why does it lie at that level? Who does it aid? Who is it most distant from? Those are key questions that the social encyclicals have been asking the world structures and institutions to ask for the last 150 years. And cleverly, those are the questions that lie at the heart of some of the structural challenges for the church. So it's a bit like we need to receive and be converted to our own Catholic social teaching for the sake of ecclesial renewal. Hmm. I could just ask you one last question before I, I let you go, but I hope that folks after listening to you will, will go, if they haven't already, uh, go online and can get a copy of, of the document and read through it. Are there any things we haven't talked about yet? Any sections you would want to kind of draw attention, uh, some attention to so when, when folks are reading through it, they, they can be on the lookout for themes or particular, particular sections? Um, I think rather than sort of just saying you should look out for a particular section, because I think the document really needs to be considered as a whole. I think one of the dangers and a media eye can often train us to read church documents in this way because of the very brittle moment we live in. We might well approach the document looking for our single issue, the thing that most concerns us about the church right now, and be tempted, therefore, to read the document as a list of issues or to imagine that the synod will be like a mini have lots of mini synods within the synod, um, be discussing uh, women as a whole topic, be discussing uh, issues about transparency and accountability as a single topic, be discussing questions about welcome to LGBTQ plus Catholics as a, as a distinct issue. The danger of that approach is that it misses the bigger framework which the document is setting before us, which is this big threefold structure. How can we be renewed in communion? for the sake of mission and build participatory structures that enable that communion and foster that sense of mission. And each topic or issue as it emerges is to be viewed through the lenses of communion, participation and mission. And it's the capacity to see what kind of movement that's calling us into as a church, what kind of reflective space that that structure is trying to set up for us. So the questions, for example, about inclusion and belonging are set within the framework of the question of how can love and truth meet? How can mercy and truth meet? That's the framework for asking many of those questions about inclusion and belonging. So it's taking a moment in a very febrile, short attention span culture to consider not simply the hot button issues that the media will draw attention to, but rather the framework the imaginative space within which those are being held. That, that's what I'd really encourage people to stay with um, as they begin to read the document. 
Well, Professor Anna Rollins, thank you so much for taking the time and for helping us uh, get into the Instrumentum Laboris. And thank you for all the work uh, you have done and will continue to do uh, for Synodality. Not at all. Thank you for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.